Do you want to stop yelling and have your child listen to? Well, I have exciting news for you. If you're hearing this right now, it means that the doors to mindful parenting are open at mindfulparentingcourse.com. This only happens for a limited time, and it may be perfect for you if you want to be that patient, calm parent, but you're afraid of being walked all over, you're losing it, and you want to be that steady, peaceful parent, you don't have a cohesive method, and you take in bad advice like just count to one, two, three. Mindful parenting is an evidence-based system that not only teaches you how to calm your reactivity, but offers you a ton of personal guidance. A lot of other parenting coaches talk about the best way to respond to your child, but guess what? They don't walk you through the research-proven practices that it really takes to create changes that actually last. Mindful Parenting teaches you the specific steps to create cooperative, loving relationships for life. In Mindful Parenting, you can learn how to stay calm, even if you find yourself shouting hourly now. Be present for your child no matter what they're going through. Resolve conflicts easily without yelling or taking away the iPad. Set limits without your child resenting you for days afterward. And build trust between you and your child so that you avoid misery in the teen years. The doors are open now at mindfulparentingcourse.com. Unlike other programs in Mindful Parenting, we offer one-on-one coaching to every member and weekly drop-in coaching sessions. Don't wait anymore. You and your kids are worth leveling up. Go to mindfulparentingcourse.com and join now before the doors close again. That's mindfulparentingcourse.com. I'll see you there. And I know it sounds like so, I don't know, trite, hippie, new age, self-centered, whatever we want to call it these days, self-indulgent, self-involved you know, that self-compassion is the key to all other things. But it really is true because if our heart is hardened to ourselves, how is it possible to authentically love others? And what I found is that as I was able to love and appreciate, like genuinely love, appreciate, and enjoy myself, who I was, that that provided me with the safety, the ease, the freedom to expand and relax my love out for others. You're listening to the Mindful Mama podcast, episode 145. Today, we're talking about deepening spirituality together, with Sumi Loundon Kim. Welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast. Here, it's about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have, Mama. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm your host, Hunter Clarkfield's Mindful Mama mentor. I coach overstressed moms on how to cultivate calm in their daily lives to create more peace and cooperation in their families. I've been practicing mindfulness for over 20 years. I'm the creator of the Mindful Parenting Course, and I'm the author of the upcoming new book, Raising Good Humans, a mindful guide to breaking the cycle of reactive parenting and raising kind, confident kids. 
Welcome back, dear listener. So great to connect again or welcome if it is your new time, first time, new time. I can speak today, your first time listening to the podcast. I am so glad you are here. Glad to be in your ears. In just a moment, we are going to be sitting down with Sumi Loudon Kim, and she's a very cool woman that I got the pleasure to spend a week with last summer. And she's a Buddhist chaplain at, she was a Buddhist chaplain at Duke University, and she was a minister for the Mindful Families of Durham. And originally, you'll hear her story, she was originally brought up in a Zen community in the 70s. She had a really interesting upbringing. And she's been a student of the insight meditation tradition since her teens. And she's the author of several books, including Blue Jean Buddha, The Buddha's Apprentices, and we're going to sit down and talk about her new mindfulness curriculum sitting together. So this conversation is really about how to bring a mindfulness-based spirituality to your children. And I'm really looking forward to you joining me with this because we're going to talk about how people outside of religion need a sense of meaning and belonging that spiritual connection provides. And we're going to talk about mindfulness and mindful parenting and how it's like a two-for-one deal. You'll get to hear about that. And then how to teach your child to regulate their emotions. So lots of great stuff in this conversation. Before we dive in, I want to let you know that I am so excited about taking a VIP group to Costa Rica in April. This retreat is going to be the Raising Good Humans VIP retreat in Costa Rica. And I have some spots and I would love to talk to you about coming with me. So if you want some more information about that, you can go to mindfulmamamentor.com slash Costa Rica and there'll be, we'll have special, you'll get early access to some of the book materials and we'll be doing some exercises for deepening our own healing and spirituality and indeed from Raising Good Humans. So learn more about that at mindfulmamamentor.com slash Costa Rica. And now on to this episode. Sumi, thank you so much for coming on the Mindful Mama podcast. I'm so glad you could be here. Oh, thank you. I'm delighted to be with you, Hunter. So you and I met at a Buddhist mindfulness family retreat over the summer, and I discovered that you had done a lot of work on retreats themselves and and sharing mindfulness with kids. And I'm so excited to talk about your curriculum, Sitting Together, which is this whole curriculum for Sumi. What I'm getting from this is that it's like a curriculum for people who want to create sitting groups with families and with kids. And it seems like it's really geared towards people who are kind of coming back to a sense of spirituality as adults. And now that they have kids, they're kind of coming back to a sense of spirituality. Is that kind of who you wrote this for? Yes, that's a perfect glimpse of what <laughs> it's about. Very good. Exactly. So I began working with families about eight years ago when my own young family lived in Durham, North Carolina. And I started 
what I thought would be a small meditation group for families, and it turned into a big group with classes for the children and classes for the parents. And what I discovered is that a lot of parents were coming to this group for multiple reasons, but the primary reasons were exactly as you articulated, that now that the parents had children and the children were entering usually around age three or four, the parents would begin to give thought to the child's spiritual formation and would consider groups like the Unitarian Fellowship or a Quaker meeting or potentially returning to an institution of their own childhood. But we're not finding quite what would meet their need in those groups for a range of reasons. Or parents were unchurched, that is, they didn't have a religious background from their own childhood, had done some meditation and now wanted to introduce that for their children or do that as a family. And so they would seek out this family meditation group for both spiritual development for themselves, spiritual development for their children, and also a way of helping their children learn values, morals, ethics, character, community, service, friendship, and other things that we often value when we attend a church, a synagogue, or a temple. So after a number of years of experience working with these families and writing lesson plans for both the adults and the children's program, I realized that if I reorganized it or just even organized it a little bit, this would create a pretty helpful curriculum. And this group was also starting to receive attention from parents who wanted to start family groups of their own in other cities and towns and other Dharma organizations who wanted to develop children's programming or family programming. So I thought it would be beneficial to bring it all together into a publication instead of me telling people over the phone and sending Word documents and so forth. We could just bring it together in one book or curriculum. And that's how this um, three-volume set came about. It's massive. (laughs) Yep. Tell me about it. It took three years to write, five years of research, and now I have to color my hair. (laughs) (laughs) So so it's interesting. So you you come from I want to hear about your background a little bit, but you come from like a Buddhist background, but this it sounds like this curriculum that you wrote is it comes from the Buddhist tradition. But I'm wondering about the people who were in the group, who were in the meditation group, they probably came from all kinds of different backgrounds, right? And I'm just curious about this because I don't want to, I'm thinking about the listener who may be Christian and, and have their own tradition and may be worried that, you know, maybe meditation is not a thing to do if they're a Christian. But I'm willing to bet there were some people in that group who had their own faith and were also in the meditation group. Is my bet correct? (laughs) Yes. So as far as the curriculum, it is written for a very broad range of backgrounds from people who are interested in what we might call a secular form of mindfulness practice that is highly compatible for people with strong faith traditions, the Abrahamic traditions, Hinduism, etc., 
as well as those who don't have a particular faith tradition in their lives right now, but want the incredibly helpful aspects of mindfulness meditation around stress reduction, around becoming better parents and living at a more awake and attuned way. So the curriculum meets the needs of that population, but it is also intended to meet the needs of those who would probably call themselves spiritual, but not religious. We call them SBNR in the training for short, SBNR. And that right now is actually a rising demographic. The Pew Charitable Research Foundation found that over a quarter of all millennials who are now that rising generation of parents identify as none, N-O-N-E, in terms of their faith tradition. So we have an increasing population that doesn't identify with a spiritual or a faith tradition, but is looking for a way to do spirituality. And so mindfulness offers a very useful platform for that. And then on the other side of the spectrum, we have parents who have what we would call a Dharma background, parents who maybe have some Buddhist influence from their own upbringing or something that they encountered in college or practiced as young adults before having children who do want a Buddhist-informed way of proceeding with their family. So I wrote the curriculum to meet the needs of these three different populations, which, you know, kind of slide along the spectrum from secular mindfulness all the way up to avowedly Buddhist, you might say, or over to avowedly Buddhist. It would meet the needs of these different populations pretty well. There's a lot of mindful parenting and mindful stuff for children in the world of mindfulness and mindful education and so forth. That is straight up secular, and you wouldn't be able to find anything identifiably Buddhist in it. I thought about creating the curriculum in that vein, but the majority of families that I have met were really looking for the additional layer of spiritual development and the Buddhist perspective, the Buddhist teachings are able to go into some of those important elements around spirituality and spiritual development. And so it was really, I found found it very necessary to bring in some aspects of Buddhist teaching only the ones that are really relevant for lay people living busy householder lives and not some of the other teachings that pertain more toward intensive retreat or monastic settings. It really is an awesome kind of curriculum. You talk about gratitude, you talk about fear, you talk about parenting and ethics, you talk about non-harming, anger, and all these all these different things. So just for the for the listener, what are some of the you talked about how some people come to this to to be better parents, to take some of these tools and be better parents. So what exactly are the the benefits for the parents and for the children of doing some of these mindfulness practice? What are some of the the, the takeaways that people are having from this? So for the parents What we see most immediately is that they become 
much more attuned to their family life and to their children. I would say within a week or two of beginning to practice mindfulness or pick up this curriculum or other programs that might be in their area. So even that intention to become a more aware, attuned parent and to undertake that intentionally begins to have an impact within a week or two. And so parents will find, oh, I'm listening to my child better. Oh, I heard what they were really saying. Oh, I perceived that flicker of emotion that's underlying this difficult moment between us. Oh, I am more aware of myself as I'm doing my parenting thing. And as soon as they become more aware of what's happening in the family, you know, within that first week or two, then they begin to see that they're responding to their children and working with themselves and the dynamics in the family uh, with greater sensitivity, with greater subtlety, with greater kindness. And because of that observable benefit that comes, you know, then the parent becomes even more invested in, oh, you know, well, if it worked this far, how much further can I take it? And so over the course of months and and maybe even years, what we see in family life is that the parent can really substantially transform how he or she is in relationship with their children and also how we're in relationship with ourselves. And it can become a very profound path of healing for ourselves as well as flourishing for the whole family. And the other arc of development that I see when um, parents undertake a mindfulness program for themselves and their children is that while we begin maybe with addressing immediate practical concerns, how can I be kinder to my children? How can I be less reactive? How can I be less harsh? (laughs) Which is, I think, a very common experience for parents that as some of those immediate challenges begin to resolve and ease, then the sense of what mindful parenting can be expands and becomes larger and larger so that it becomes also about the whole family. It becomes about community and our relationship with our schools. It becomes about how we're thinking about the environment and the world and our our children's place in the world. So this is a practice that can address things in the immediate and then become gradually over time, become more and more expansive and inclusive so that it's really about our whole life and our children's whole life and their flourishing in the world beyond the time that we, the very precious short time that we have with them in the home. So you said this is like become this profound path of healing for ourselves and our family, and then also the way we kind of go out into the world. I want to tell you about a great podcast that you should check out, especially if you ever deal with any school system, which you probably do. It's called Understood Explains. This season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. And this season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP and busts common myths about special education. 
So I checked out the episode on the difference between IEPs and 504 plans because my daughter Maggie uses a 504 plan and it was really, really helpful. It went over all the differences, which one's better, how to get them, different myths and what your rights are, all kinds of different things that you should understand if your child may need extra help in education through an IEP or a 504 plan. The tone is super helpful, friendly, and smart. I highly recommend you check it out. To listen to Understood Explains, just search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's it. Understood Explains. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory, two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And now we're back with a whole new podcast about unsticking it, launching in January. What happens when life gets in the way of our creativity instead of nourishing it? We talk to all sorts of guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. So join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Get out of there, life gunk. Let us help you get back to your best creative self. Look for Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Wherever you listen to podcasts starting in January, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking it. So bring us to yours. I'd love to hear your story now, Sumi, because you have a really unusual story. You had a very unusual upbringing growing up with parents who were living in a Buddhist community, right? Yeah. Yeah, I did have this very unusual start. My parents were living in a Zen community in rural New Hampshire in the mid-70s when I was born. And so I was raised in an almost monastery-like situation where all the uh, adults and families were, were living together in this very large former boys' school. It was a huge building. And there was a, a zendo, a meditation room, where everyone gathered for meditation at 5 in the morning. And then the children joined at 5.30 in the morning for a half hour of meditation, which was followed by chanting in Japanese and bowing practice. And there's candlelight and the sound of the the gong would, you know, resonate throughout the hall. And so this was my earliest, these were my earliest memories. And as an adult, what I remember about that time, about growing up in a Zen setting was that everything I remembered the most and that had the biggest influence on me over the years were the things that connected with my senses. So the sound of the gong, the smell of the incense, the glow of the candles, chanting together, the movement of the body with bowing, the beautiful image of the Buddha with his very peaceful smile and and warm presence. And I also remember the community, the, the feeling of belonging, of safety, of being able to interact with many different adults who were not my parents. And so when my children started to become of the age around three or four, that I thought, oh, I want to bring this to them. I felt that the best way to 
convey both the Dharma and some kind of spirituality was, would be through their senses. I noticed that if we took a trip to an amazing place and then they came back and somebody said, oh, did you enjoy your visit to Yosemite? They would say, yeah, we had ice cream. You know, like <laughs> the most important thing was the ice cream. So clearly children live through their mouths and senses. So when I started to write lesson plans for them and for other children, I grounded all of it in the senses. So all the lesson plans have materials for singing, for example. So that touches into the children's hearing and into their voice. There are crafts so that they can touch stuff. We do all the meditation exercises are like either visual or auditory or something that they can feel with their hands. So if we want children to be able to perceive their breath, we can have them blow bubbles from a bubble wand and then they can like actually see their breath in the bubble. So everything in this curriculum is very grounded in the senses because I think based on my own childhood that children experience spirituality through their senses. That's where we can connect with them. So anyway, back to my <laughs> Well, just- hold on. Just a sec. You mentioned the word dharma a couple times, and I just would like to define it for somebody who's listening who says, what is that? Is that the character from the TV show way back when? No. <laughs> dharma and Greg, right. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll, I'll let you define it. What do you, when you're using the word, what, what are you meaning? Oh, that's such a great question. So the dharma... The Dharma stands for the teachings or the philosophy of the Buddhist lineage. Mm-hmm. So those would include things like the recognition that life can be stressful and difficult and that there are ways of working with that stress that are potentially liberating or transformative for us. They include teachings on the best way to guide one's life, we call those the five ethical guidelines, includes teachings on the nature of self and the nature of reality and of our interconnectedness with each other and with the environment and with all things. So when I say the Dharma, it's this body of teachings that provide a very helpful framing for how to understand ourselves and the experience that we're having. No, so you grew up with the Dharma, with these teachings and teachings of interconnectedness and teachings of no self, which means that there's no separate independent self, which is contrary, right, to a a Christian teaching, which is like that there's a a separate individual soul. And Mm -hmm. this idea of no self is that you are interconnected, that there are parts of you that that come from many different places. Yeah, that make up you. And so it's interesting because there's no way for you to know what it might be <laughs> like to grow up without that teaching. But I'm wondering, <laughs> you know, can you discern any, any ways that affected you as you grew up as a young person? I have been really curious about this myself. And I think I'm not sure, but one thing, one takeaway that I have from from that time is that if a child is raised with a certain set of practices and perspectives, it does have a long-term 
impact on their adult life. And I say this because I did some research by calling up a whole bunch of other children who had been raised in these unusual settings and were now adults. And I interviewed them to find out, you know, were they carrying this, some of this early childhood experience into adulthood? How were they enacting that or not? You know, what did they decide to keep? What did they decide to dispense with? And, and who were they? You know, was it beneficial to them? And I, what I would summarize is that, yes, most of the, oh, they were in their 20s at the time that I did these interviews. I, I, I was also in my 20s. They were different. They tended to be, first of all, they tended to take a, a communal or community approach or understanding to themselves in the world. They had an expanded sense of self that was identifiably beyond I, me, mine, or I'm going to have this profession because it'll make me a lot of money and then my family will be secure. Like they weren't thinking in those terms at all. They tended to think in larger terms, like what is the state of the world and what's, you know, how can I be of service to alleviating the suffering of all beings? For example, some pretty high aspirations. So they did tend to bring that into their adult life. And I also found a lot of those young adults to be unusually thoughtful, really good listeners, fairly considered in their speech. They tended to hold ethical standards as a primary way of guiding their lives. In other words, they were very aware of how they were conducting themselves in the world. They had really good intentions. I'm not saying that they were necessarily better than someone raised Catholic or, you know, Jewish or so forth and so forth, but definitely whatever work their parents had done in their formative years was coming through in their adult years. Breathe. I'm interrupting the podcast to invite you to imagine listening to the ocean and feeling the warm breeze on your face. Imagine seeing little monkeys and smelling the fragrance of a tropical orchid while looking out at a vista of islands and endless ocean. This will be your reality when you join me for the Mindful Mama Costa Rica Retreat next April. We'll be staying in a luxurious private estate, which has a view to the beach over the rainforest canopy from every room, as well as from the yoga porch and the infinity pool. Join me and other mindful mamas with each day designed to have a perfect balance of time for yoga, mindfulness, discussion, and free and open time so you can either make it adventurous, go hiking, learn to surf, kayak through the mangroves, go ziplining or more, or make it relaxing. Instead of adventures, relax poolside or wander down to the beach. We'll start each day with meditation and all levels yoga on the yoga porch. Every afternoon, we'll come together for guided relaxation and coaching and discussion with me. Locally sourced foods will be served at breakfast and dinner by our talented in-house chef. 
If you want to get away from everything and take the break that I know you deserve, join me. We have limited spots available, so now is the time to reserve at mindfulmamamentor.com slash Costa Rica or email me at hunter at mindfulmamamentor.com. That's mindfulmamamentor.com slash Costa Rica or email me at hunter at mindfulmamamentor.com. I can't wait for you to join me there. Breathe. Hmm. Wow. Wow. I mean, because that's a, that's interesting because it's such what you're doing is tapping into these, this, this whole need out there, right? Where all these parents and young parents who are spiritual, but not religious. Right. And I I guess, you know, I would kind of characterize myself in that category in, in some way, you know, I grew up agnostic, you know, my parents were agnostic, you know, meaning that we were just questioning. And so I kind of grew up as nothing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I grew up as nothing in a Catholic town, which is a whole other story. But oh. um, <laughs> certain points I remember in college, like really uh, studying kind of world religions and kind of seeing that, that even if that having some kind of framework is really helpful, right? That that yeah. you're not just alone, a drifter floating in the world, making it all up as you go along, which is kind of, I guess, in some ways how I felt, you know, which was in some ways maybe empowering, I don't know. But, but that at least for, you know, when my girls were born, I had been practicing in this tradition for a while and I really felt like, oh, I want them to have some kind of framework for yeah. them to at least like, you know, maybe they push against it or whatever, but some kind of framework to say like, you know, this is a good way of doing things in the world and this is not such a good way of doing things in the world. And it's not just mommy and daddy making this up. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. It's, um, I think what you're providing is really a valuable resource because people are wanting that. People are needing this. Yes, you are bringing up I think the essential point, and I'll affirm it as the Buddhist chaplain, the other chaplains and I met with one of the university psychologists who talked to us about the role of spiritual development in the well-being of of the university students there. And I asked a question at some point. The students who undergo some kind of crisis, whether it's an injury in athletics or alcoholism or feeling suicidal or something like that, the students that his office would tend to see, do the students who have a faith background in their childhood do better or worse than the students who don't? And what I actually had in mind when I asked the question was really around homosexuality. I was thinking that the students who had been raised thinking that homosexuality was a sin would end up in crisis and then that would become a struggle. But his answer was actually like... Oh, Sumi, you got broken up a little bit. You you were talking about your conversation about whether you said if his answer was, was not... It sounds like it was not what you expected. Go ahead and try to answer that again. Yeah. So he gave this wonderful answer. He said, it's really informed a lot of what I've done since then. He said, without a doubt, the students 
who had had a churched background, that is, they were raised with some kind of faith tradition in their childhood, not only survived their crisis better, but they were able to make meaning from it and to grow from that experience compared to those students who had not been raised with a faith tradition, who came from the background that you were talking about for yourself. Because mm-hmm. that even if the student no longer agreed, let's say they had been raised Catholic, but were no longer considering themselves to be Catholic anymore, nonetheless, they had a language and a way of thinking about themselves, their experience and the world that unquestionably helped them to find meaning in what they were undergoing compared to those students who had not had any ways of making meaning from their broader life experience, which typically come through through a church or some kind of spiritual or religious setting. So I thought that was really fascinating. And that's one of the reasons I was motivated to write this curriculum is to give, especially those family who are SBNR, spiritual but not religious, give them some way of giving their children a language for articulating what they're experiencing, understanding it, making meaning from it, and growing from that. So. Yeah, I think that's just such a helpful pointer. You know, the other thing about this impulse to find some way of doing spirituality, not letting it remain like this kind of vague feeling in the background, because we we have, especially right now, there's this deep longing for spiritual connection and spiritual grounding, at least here in the United States, that we help people find ways of doing that. And I think the key part of that, that a lot of of us miss, is doing that in community, doing that with others. Because the, the essence of spirituality, from what I can understand, is around connection with something that is greater than ourselves. It's about feeling that connection between this sense of who we are, this sort of small self, and broadening that, extending that out into relationships, into community, into being a a citizen of the world and, and with nature. And so we're longing for these avenues of connection, which is is like the the heartbeat of what spirituality is. But we're tending to try to do that alone, which is kind of ironic. Like, how do you (laughs) alone? So we really need to do that in community. And this addresses a second thing that is kind of missing for a lot of us, and that is a feeling of belonging. So when we do these practices, mindfulness meditation or any, any kind of religious practice with other people, then we're building a community of belonging, which provides, you know, it provides these avenues of connection. It provides safety. It provides soothing. It provides um, companionship. It's just so essential to spiritual formation. And it's, it's even more essential, I think, for children. So one of the things that this curriculum 
emphasizes is if you're going to do it, grab a few other people in your neighborhood, or maybe you have a friend who's far away, but you stay in touch online and you can video conference or something like that. But do it with other people because the heart of spirituality is connection. And this curriculum is built to help us develop those relationships and connections. This is awesome. I'm, I'm so excited about it. And I, I agree, there is that, that need, that wanting, that sense of belonging. And, and I, I like how, you know, you take this, in, and many of us know mindfulness in a secular way of, you know, it's reducing stress and helping us to be more grounded, but to also to look at these components that, you know, taking this all together and taking the ethics and bringing it all into this place where, we're a community, we're belong, there's a sense of belonging and we're providing kids with this sense of belonging and, and maybe around ethics or, or, or beliefs that resonate, you know, more deeply than at least the, the I don't know who I am ethics that I grew up with. But a lot, no, I'm interested about this idea for people who are also like maybe interested in the curriculum in that more of a secular realm because I'm, interested in the idea of a lot of the Buddhist ethics and the, the things that cross over into this spiritual realm are also have a lot to do with kids' emotional regulation, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a whole bunch, I mean, and some, some people call Buddhism more of a psychology than a religion because it's more about your helping you regulate and take care of your, your difficult feelings and get along in the world in, in this way. So what are some of the things, maybe you can give us a, a little overview of some of the things in there that help kids with emotional regulation as well? Okay. Because you talk about, I mean, you talk about like fear, you talk about taking care of difficult feelings And these are things that often as parents we're at a loss at because maybe the tradition, like say, probably for some of the listeners, you know, there, there may be someone out there with a tradition that said that, you know, or, or parents or, or family culture that just said, don't feel that, (laughs) you know, like (laughs) I'm angry with you for being upset, right? So you're not allowed to feel that feeling and that's kind of impossible, right? There's a lot of stuffing it down that goes on in a lot of traditions. So (laughs) (laughs) yeah, no, that's, that's hilarious. I guess because I was raised with this whole ethos of being in touch with your feelings. Sometimes I forget, you know, that that's not assumed or shared across traditions or modalities. So thank you for reminding me of that. Yeah. So one of the, I think one of the most powerful offerings of mindfulness practice is exactly around emotional attunement and regulation. And and also I would include, you know, understanding how our mind works, how our, our brain works and uh, becoming more aware of what's going on there. So The way this operates is, you know, first we teach the kid how to let go of being so distracted by bringing the attention to breathing. So actually the the prerequisite to all of this is helping kids to put down their devices because those little distraction objects are so addictive and they're really pulling kids out of 
being in touch with what they're thinking and what they're feeling. So the prerequisite is, first of all, we have to turn off the devices or put them in another room and then the kids, you know, minds won't be there. They'll be much more available for doing some of these practices. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone, and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, whew, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. Sumi, I want to interject here because this is like, in some ways, this is such a radical premise just saying that because, (laughs) no, honestly, like I was just reading a, a wonderful book which is uh, the good news about bad behavior. And she points out the research that says, because it's hard to take care, to deal with kids' difficult feelings, they're given these devices so early that in fact, the average age right now for the, a child is given a device um, to distract them is four months old. <gasps> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Oh my goodness. That probably has some pretty serious implications for the long-term emotional health of our children. Wow. It, it really does. So yeah, so it, it's pretty amazing. So anyway, we first, we teach the child how to be less distracted. And, and that in itself is a big thing, as we're pointing out in this day and age. Yeah, right. And by the way, you know, as probably a lot of articles point out when we talk about kids and devices, The parents are just as culpable. I mean, we are uh, modeling pretty addictive behaviors ourselves with how we're using these in our lives. And so I would say a pre-prerequisite is for the parent (laughs) to think about how they're doing that in their lives. So one of the things I realized early on, since I do come from a pre-device generation, barely, but 
what I learned to do is to put my screens away when we were in family household mode. So in other words, I really only was using my devices when the kids were in bed or still asleep or at school or, you know, in some other setting, or maybe even they were both taking showers. And anyway, I would use that time to catch up on a little bit of work. And then I would batch my household stuff into the hours where we were all in the home together and being active so that, you know, while they're doing their chores, I'm doing my household stuff and cleaning up and whatever. And maybe I'm not directly paying attention to them, but we all know that we're considerably more available when we're not focused on a screen. We could even be like really absorbed in cooking and listening to the radio at the same time even then our attention is still way more available than when we're like on Facebook or reading the news online or something like that. So maybe the pre-prerequisite is parents thinking about how they're doing that, modeling that for their children, and then helping children to be much more intentional about when they're using a device and then when they're not. And then we have a much better situation for helping them with some of these skills such as touching into the breath and feeling where the breath is in their body. And this has, it's very helpful because our breath reflects our emotions, but it also helps to regulate our emotions. So when we're upset, our breathing becomes rapid, shallow, and up in our chest. And amazingly, I mean, I think this is just an amazing thing that can happen with between the mind and the body. If we take a deep breath down in the belly, that has this very powerful effect of calming the body, the mind down very, very quickly. I think we all know this intuitively because if a child comes to us and is so upset they can't even articulate what they're saying, we say, whoa, 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 let's take three deep breaths before we go on. So we already know that breathing helps to regulate emotion and to help us kind of see more clearly what it is we're feeling. So it begins there. And then once that's in hand, then we help children begin to name their emotions by observing their bodies and getting to know their own body in relationship to how it expresses emotion. And although there are a lot of common features across people, everybody can have their own particular physical manifestations of a particular emotion. So yes, we uh, all we'll tend to get tears when we're crying and upset, but one person might also get a tightness in their belly and another person might feel their toes curl, you know, when they're sad or something like that. So we help children get to know how, what the physiological expressions of emotion, emotions are. And it's quite amazing. We tend to think I can just see, I can just look with my mind and see what I'm feeling, but we're actually terrible at knowing what we're feeling. We really have to check in with our body to know much more precisely what it is because the body never lies. The body will tell you exactly what's going on and where your real places of fear or anger or sadness or joy or excitement are residing in the body. And then after that, we would help children begin to name those emotions, you know, so you're feeling this, this, and this, what name would you give it? 
And then we would provide them with ways of, of working with that. So now that you've named that anger, what are some methods for, for working with it? Sometimes naming it is half the battle, right? Name it. Mm-hmm. it. But there are a lot of other things that we can, can strategies that we can deploy, like Thich Nhat Hanh is a, a very well-known Vietnamese Zen teacher who has brought been very important to bringing mindfulness to the West, uh, teaches a way of walking slowly and counting the steps to help the anger monster become more rightly proportioned to, to help take some of the air out of that. We can sit and do some belly breathing. We could go outdoors where the anger has more space to be rather than in a small room where the anger just bounces off the walls and comes back and hits us. So we provide children with these ways of attending to what they're feeling, giving them some space to think about, okay, I'm experiencing this, experiencing this anger. And then, you know, how do I want to come back to the other person who I perceive is the source of making me angry Um, and give them some tools for thinking about next steps and how to communicate that. So that's just, you know, I'm just laying it out Mm -hmm. briefly how we would do that. But again, all of this is resting on the foundation of the parent's own ability or inability (laughs) to do the same things. And I mean, Hunter, how many times have you yelled at your kids to quiet down, right? (laughs) (laughs) Be quiet already. Yeah. Stop being so angry. (laughs) Get a control of yourself, you know, as we get, you know. Yeah. Yeah. We we have to take control of our our hypocritical tendencies. I, I say it's a huge win to just to start to yell, I'm really frustrated. Right. Right. Exactly. So really, when we think about children's emotional regulation, at the same time, we must be thinking about where are we with that as parents? How much are we embodying that or modeling that for our children? This is especially true in how we interact with our spouse if if we're living with someone or or any other adult member of the household, grandma or mother-in-law, you know, how... As adults, are we living out what we want our children to begin to develop for themselves? So when we think about teaching children these practices, I think it's incredibly important that parents are undertaking this themselves. And I would argue that if a parent is going to put time into anything, because we do have limited time, that the parent opt to put more time and energy into their own development rather than in the children's. And I say this for a couple of reasons. One is that, as I mentioned, how we proceed with our relationships and with our emotions is absolutely a model for our children. And it serves as a nonverbal implicit model that in many ways will carry forward more than what we directly tell or teach our children. For example, my daughter, who's now 12, I'm I'm a fairly organized person. I love Google spreadsheets and so on. And 
And uh, when we were about to move last year, we said, okay, you know, we can get some furniture for your bedroom. And, you know, why don't you think about that? And about a couple of days later, she comes back to me with a, a piece of paper that is a grid that she made with a ruler. It's incredibly neatly laid out. It has the item, the vendor, how much it costs. <laughs> you know, it was a Google spreadsheet. I never taught her how to do that. Yet somehow just living with me, you know, she picked that up. I'm like, hallelujah, girl. I mean, you got to use Google spreadsheets. So my 11 year old makes lists for the day, just like her father. (laughs) Exactly. It's kind of alarming, actually. (laughs) What other things are they picking up on? So, okay. So the modeling is an incredibly powerful teacher. If you put your effort into your own development, it gives you what I like to call a two-for-one deal. You (laughs) developed and your child will implicitly get that development as well. So I think that's a pretty awesome deal. I love that. A two-for-one deal. I love that. It is. I think, okay, so the other reason I think in mindful parenting, what we the emphasis, if we have limited time and energy, the emphasis of putting it on yourself, the other benefit of that is that I think that most of our parenting difficulties tend to, it's not true for everybody, but for many of us who are drawn to this, tend to reside in our own broken or immature or unresolved places that themselves may have their roots in our own childhood. And that as we work to understand those places and heal those places, that has a pretty big impact on how we parent and therefore on our relationship with our children and how we're relating to them and longer term, they then in, in turn relate to their spouses and their children. So just to take this from the theoretical to the real, maybe I can just share a story from my own experience that might illustrate this. Do you want me to? Sure. Yeah, please. Okay. So when my kids were much younger, around ages three and five, we were living in an apartment that happened to have a rug in the dining room, which, just as a side note, is a terrible idea. <laughs> Never had My a husband agrees. <laughs> yes. Rug plus early childhood. Yeah, if you don't have a dog. <laughs> yeah. Don't have yeah, a dog. Right, right. The dog. The Roomba of pets. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so... One morning, I made them slight gooey scrambled eggs. I put it on their plates. I went back to the kitchen to do some work, and I come back to the dining room, and there are little bits of scrambled eggs on the floor in the rug. And I get down on my hands and knees, and I start to try to get this gooey scrambled egg out of the furry fibers. It does not come out easily. And of course, I'm starting to sweat. I didn't like it. And I start to talk to them from under the table and they're like picking their legs and giggling. And I'm like, 
How many times <laughs> you put your chin over your plate? For God's sakes, how hard is this? You even have a bib on with a catch. Um, maybe I should make you come down here and clean it up. I just cleaned this rug and I'm kind of going on and on. And because I probably because I had been meditating fairly regularly, just, you know, 20 minutes a day, um, a few times a week, at some point, I, I kind of like pop out of being me and I'm able to hear myself as if somebody's recording me. And I can hear myself talking to my kids this way. And I think, huh, they're three and five. What would you expect? (laughs) Maybe this is a little bit harsh and it sounds like you have pretty high expectations for kids so young. And then I thought, yeah, these are high expectations. This does sound harsh. I wonder where I got that kind of parenting voice. You know, why do I talk this way? And then this voice from the beyond kind of comes forward. I wonder if I talk to myself that way. Mm. And I thought, oh, (laughs) that sounds like an intriguing question. So at the next meditation available, I decided to do a listening meditation. Instead of listening to the sounds outside, I thought, let me see, the, what kind of voice do I talk to myself with? So I settled in. I took some nice deep breaths and got centered. And then I just opened my ears and, and I listened. And after a few minutes, I heard this really clear and distinct voice. It was my own voice, you know, same kind of timbre and such. And the voice went something like this. Sit up. Pull your shoulders back. You call yourself a meditator? 30 years and you still can't follow your breath? Really? And I was just like, oh, oh my, oh. It was so, it was so painful. It was painful to hear that. And as soon as I heard it, I had kind of three insights that sort of flashed one after the other, boom, boom, boom. The first was that the voice that I speak to my children and my spouse with is exactly the same voice that I speak to myself with and vice versa, and that they were mirrors of each other. The second realization was that that, the voice that I talk to myself with is, has its origins in the voice I took on from one of my parents. That I had a parent who had very high expectations and was very critical probably helped me meet that those high expectations with that kind of judging and shaming type of um, commentary. And that after many years of hearing that parental voice from someone else, I had made it my own. And that that was, that was how I continued to guide myself as an adult. And then the third insight that I had, and this is really important for meditation practice, is that No wonder I didn't enjoy meditation. I did meditation, but I hated it. 
And the reason that I didn't like it was because it was an opportunity for me to judge and shame and berate myself. And so, you know, who on earth would enjoy meditating, hearing themselves criticized the whole time? So Mm. after I understood these three things, I thought, okay, wow, here's where the work is. And after that, what I did was I practiced a form of meditation that's called loving kindness meditation. Sometimes we call it self-compassion. And I realized that that was what was needed is I needed to do a lot of rebuilding of a sense of love and kindness for myself. And so this actually began by expressing love and appreciation for myself during meditation. A one meditation, I heard this judging, shaming, high expectations voice come up. And I decided to talk to myself like you would talk to a dog. I was like, oh, who's a good meditator? You're good. <laughs> Oh, you're such a good meditator. Yes, you are. You're a good girl. <laughs> it was amazing. I felt so good about myself. And very naturally, of course, I began to actually enjoy meditation because through the practice of, of finding kindness and compassion for myself, I was sitting there feeling good, loving myself. And I know it sounds like so, I don't know, trite, hippie, new age, self-centered, whatever we want to call it these days, self-indulgent, self-involved, you know, that self-compassion is the key to all other things. But it really is true because if our heart is hardened, to ourselves, how is it possible to authentically love others? And what I found is that as I was able to love and appreciate, like genuinely love, appreciate, and enjoy myself, who I was, that that provided me with the safety, the ease, the freedom to expand and relax my love out for others. So, you know, real love and kindness for others, truly, it truly begins with that for oneself. So after I practiced this for a couple weeks, what I found quite amazingly and without really any intention is that the way that I spoke to my children and to my spouse began to get much kinder, much gentler, much more connected and the kind of harsh, judgmental, blaming, shaming, high expectations voice began to fade away. And it wasn't that I became more, you know, lenient or didn't have, you know, suddenly let go of all expectations that those were still there. But how we did that just changed pretty in some pretty important ways. So one of the things with mindfulness practice is that Parents want to change how they're speaking with their family members. And so what they'll do is they'll try to use mindfulness to regulate or monitor their speech at the gateway rather than what I think is probably more, has a longer term benefit working at the deeper levels of healing 
the source of that harsh, angry, irritated, blaming, shaming type of voice and go doing that at a deeper level. So that's where I think mindful parenting has its much, much more transformative possibilities. Sumi, thank you for that story. That's awesome and incredible. And I love how, you know, it was like this toppling of the dominoes, you know, when it was started with the scrambled eggs and taking that stress and that challenge and then taking that challenge and letting that challenge be your teacher, which had was profound, profound, yeah. profound teacher. So unfortunately, we we have to stop talking because as we discovered on our retreat, uh, we can talk for together for a long time. <laughs> Sorry, I'm also a long talker. I, I but I want to know, I want to know before we go, Sumi's curriculum is called Sitting Together. It's by Wisdom Publications, but where can people connect with you and find out more about your work online? Oh, thank you for asking. Well, the best place to buy it is on Amazon. That's where it's the most affordable. It's a three volume set and it includes an activity book like coloring pages for your mm-hmm. word puzzles, really fun stuff to engage them in this material. And then at mindfulfamilies.net.net is where they'll find songs for downloading and an amazing bibliography. There are so many wonderful children's books that we can read to our children about how to eat an apple mindfully or how to calm down the anger monster. I find that reading stories with children is one of the best teaching tools because it offers a third voice that isn't your parenting voice about how we can do mindfulness as a family. And songs are equally valuable because they provide instruction or or perspective in a, a way that's super memorable and really enjoyable for, especially for young children. So if they can go, if people can go to that website, you can find these songs and these storybooks. And you have one of, you have one of my daughter's favorite songs in there, Standing Like a Tree with My Roots Dug Down. (laughs) That is a great song. I love that song. This has been so much fun, Sumi. Absolutely wonderful. Maybe we'll have to have you on again to answer any unanswered questions that, that we have about this. And I just really appreciate you and the work that you're doing. I, I appreciate that you have taken the time and the effort to be so meticulous putting together this, this curriculum and this work that will undoubtedly benefit so many people. So I, I just want to extend my thanks for this and this talk. Oh, thank you, Hunter. It was delightful. I love sharing this. It's been so, so important for me. I have gone from being an upset, irritable, unhappy mom to being an upset, irritable, happy mom. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) No, to being, you know, it's, it's been transformative for me in so many ways. And I'm, I'm really happy to share it with other parents and wish all of you well in your own personal journey. I think, you know, the, the time that we have with our children is so precious and it's really about all of us in the family flourishing together and deepening spiritually together. So it's just, it's a remarkable opportunity for practice and I encourage everyone to to think about it in that way. That's awesome. Thanks so much. You're welcome. 
Thank you so much for listening to the Mindful Mama podcast. I hope that this served you in some way today. Hope that are taking the time to put this out to you, the the way my team works to get this to you and the you know, would sue me. And, you know, there's so much that goes on, goes behind a podcast. Like it's so much more than just recording some audio. It's really about, there's a whole team that gets together to put this on for you and to connect with, for me to be able to connect with you and your ears like this. There's a lot of effort. So if you would like to support that effort and you want to support the podcast, even listening for a while, please do subscribe, leave a rating and and share the podcast. Do leave that leave that rating in iTunes or that Apple podcast, that five-star rating. It makes a huge difference to helping other people find the Mindful Mama podcast and join the Mindful Mama tribe so we can make a difference that way. If you have any questions, you can always email me at hunter at mindfulmamamentor.com and I'm wishing you a beautiful week. You may want to learn more about the Raising Good Humans VIP retreat in Costa Rica. That's at mindfulmamamentor.com slash Costa Rica. Don't want to forget to tell you about that because you might be like me and be in your long underwear right now in the chilly cold weather and be ready to book something that is nice and warm. And this is something that it's probably won't happen again. So if you want to spend a week with me in Costa Rica, you want all the some early access to the book materials and all that good stuff, do join me. This is kind of a once in a lifetime thing that that may happen. So I'd love for you to be part of it. That would be so cool. Mindfulmamamentor.com slash Costa Rica. And I'm wishing you a beautiful week, my friend. Wishing you lots of joy. I'm wishing you some moments of pause and quiet and simplicity and touching into what is important this week. Namaste. Thank you to DJ Taz Rashid for this wonderful song, Inspiration Drive. Go ahead and download his album, Live in Love, on Apple Music or on Spotify or wherever you listen to music. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Ko, and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts.